Thank you for listening to the Highlander Podcast, where we have conversations about the past, present, and future of the outdoor industry. Thanks to Utah State University's Outdoor Product Design and Development Program for making it possible and for training the future product leaders of the outdoor industry. Learn more about the program at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Outdoor Recreation Archive, a collaboration between OPDD and USU Special Collections to preserve the history and print materials of the people, products, and brands of the outdoor industry. Follow the archive at Outdoor Rec Archive on Instagram. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode of The History of Gear, we talk with Alan Pietrasanta, owner and operator of Buttermilk Mountain Works. We talk about the importance of understanding retail and distribution in addition to product design and other memories from the outdoor industry. Welcome back, everyone. This is Chase, and joining me today is Alan Pietrasanta, owner and operator of Buttermilk Mountain Works. Thank you for being here. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me, Chase. Looking forward to a little discussion. Of course. Well, it's... Um, it was fun getting an email from from Jim, um, making that introduction. Um, Jim Thompson, one of the, one of the founders of uh, Wilderness Experience. Of course, we can maybe talk about um, the the connection there um, at some point. But um, you know, he he introduced us and said, "Well, this is someone where you, you've got to document their story. You've you've got to get them on record." So I appreciate that introduction and and. Um, I'm excited to learn a little bit more about uh, about buttermilk. So, but I guess let's go back a little bit. I'd, I'd be curious to hear what your first introductions to the outdoors was. Not even the outdoor industry, but outdoor activities. Was there a, a moment for you where the light bulb went off and you you kind of discovered this world of outdoor recreation? I would think the moment was the first night I spent on the ground under the stars as a punk kid boy scout and knew that that was what I wanted to do. Um, and that was for me. And that was probably in my early teen years. And so I, I got introduced to the outdoors through that. My family was not very outdoor oriented, um, but I gravitated to it and went from there. It's a, uh, it seems like for a lot of people, scouts was that introduction. That was certainly what it was for me. I was part of a scouting family and, and then I know others in your orbit. Um, was it, was it Wayne Gregory was a big scouter, I, I believe, but it seems like scouting is one of those things that really introduced a lot of people to, to the industry. So, um, but where, where did you grow up? Where, where did you spend that? Well, I grew up in the San Fernando Valley, part mm -hmm. of L.A., and um, actually at, at the end of high school and early college, worked for um, a gentleman who was a scoutmaster part-time, but also owned an early little backpacking store in uh, the San Fernando Valley. 
and then through college uh, got deeper and deeper into climbing and skiing, backcountry skiing. And during my time at UCLA is where I graduated from. I worked at the biggest, most well-established mountaineering store in Southern California at the time, Westridge Mountaineering which was in West LA, kind of the Southern anchor to what Ski Hut in Berkeley was uh, in, in the Northern part of California in those years. Um, and, and along that time, uh, er, er, when I first worked at the first mountaineering store and early in my college years is when I got to know Jim and Greg Thompson and watched them start from uh, a retail business and actually guiding wilderness experience early on took people on wilderness trips and then they got into manufacturing and those guys pioneered so much that has affected the industry to today. It had a big influence on all of us. Well, it's interesting that influence of, first of all, like specialty retail, as well as the people who are doing the activities um, on on product companies. I, I think of there, this, this might be a deep cut for a lot of people. Uh, we've, we've done a, uh, an episode on this about the Arcata outdoor companies in that region. And, and uh, one of the people that we talked to there was um, the founder of down home that, that manufactured sleeping bags in, in Arcata. And um, they got into the industry through, well, they, they didn't have an outdoor store in their community. And so they, um, started a, a little outdoor retailer called the Arcata Transit Authority, and they just sold bike packing products and bikes and gear. and And um, it, it's just interesting that that region didn't really have a gear shop, but that gear shop spun out outdoor brands like Down Home and and uh, Blue Puma and and a number of companies from that region. So I, you know, you mentioning kind of your start in outdoor retail being an influence, I. I think of just the impact that these small regional, small or medium, large outdoor retailers have on people who eventually went and started companies. There's numerous stories of that, but you were included in that. How important was that for you to just get around the business? Did did you have any awareness of this being an industry before walking through those doors? In, in the early years, it, it was such a small industry that you couldn't help but run across. So being in Southern California and the San Fernando Valley in particular, Dick Kelty making Kelty packs or knowing uh, um, what went on with uh, Camp 7, I think, or Sunbird, which is what Rain Gregory's early incarnation was for frame packs. Um, and and in, in thinking about this, Chase, really in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Going into the 80s, it spread out a lot more. But in the sort of the 60s and 70s, I would say in the country, there were pockets of um, sort of intense outdoor industry um, retailer and manufacturers, whether it was Southern California, Northern California, Boulder, Denver, the Seattle area, and people developing gear, um, soft, soft gear, technical gear in their own ways. And then as time grew, as time went on, that grew and, and meshed and, and really has a lot to do with how interconnected we are today. Right. Yeah. We, we did an episode on that with um, an outdoor historian, Bruce Johnson, where we talked about those hot spots of gear, right. And the, all of the ones that, that you identified um, as being key to, to spinning out all these, these other brands 
you know, from these regions. But um, so I, I guess maybe talk a little bit more about your retail experiences. Um, again, was that post college? Was that before college? When when was that? Well, um, it's three periods of retail, which had a huge effect on my business and my adult life. So um, retail experience at this core little, very, very small backpacking store in the San Fernando Valley, um, early college years, then um, moving over to Westridge to a much bigger operation um, in West LA through my college years. Um, and then as soon as I finished college, Literally, I finished my last final. Um, I don't know that it goes on anymore, Chase, but we used to do the essays in a blue book. Mm -hmm. You would finish the essay and turn it into the professor. I literally folded the book closed on my last final. My car was packed and I drove to Bishop from L.A. and never looked back. And here I am almost 45 years later in Bishop. But one of my first jobs in Bishop then was in retail, was in the ski industry. And there was a shop in Bishop that was supporting um, ski activity in Mammoth, from Mammoth. And in those days, there were more beds in Bishop than there, than, um, it, there, there weren't as many beds in Mammoth. So people stayed in Bishop or even as far down as 60 miles south in Lone Pine to ski at Mammoth. So I worked in a retail outfit that was probably the busiest business in Bishop on Main Street at six o'clock in the morning. Because I'd get up and open the store at six o'clock in the morning and there would be people lined up during the Christmas holidays, as an example, to rent skis or get their skis waxed or or pick up their skis that have been tuned or buy gear. <clears throat> and then they, they'd have spent the night here and had breakfast in Bishop and then they'd drive an hour to Mammoth and ski all day. So um, those retail experiences... And, and being very involved in equipment and knowing reps and understanding how manufacturing worked and distribution worked certainly was part of my life and had a big influence on, on um, demystifying getting into doing it myself later on. It seems like a lot of people who get into this business discover later on that, oh, wow, people actually make this stuff. Right, like the the stuff that we use and and uh, use to get out. It sounds like you discovered that earlier than most because you were around the business. When did you feel like, okay, I'm I'm good at selling this, or I'm I'm good on the retail side, but I'm seeing some gaps where I could jump in and and make a, a product that doesn't exist. Where did that come about from you going from the retail side to I'm going to make make this stuff myself? Well. Living in Bishop in the early 80s, at, um, working in the ski shop, and then I was guiding for a while. So I was teaching climbing and teaching skiing. And guiding in those days was a lot different than it is now. Same in many ways, but different in that it was really, really hard to make a living. And I realized that um, to, to make a good living, um, it wasn't going to happen with guiding. And I had been influenced growing up seeing Jim and Greg grow wilderness experience from a few sewing machines to a multi-million dollar worldwide company. I had seen um, the beginnings of um, Patagonia uh, getting into um, going from Chenard equipment and hardware into clothing. And in a side part of the Westridge building, I watched these guys 
build dolt equipment, which was another sewing operation that made a lot of bags and packs and that sort of thing. And I saw that everybody could do this. And I thought, well, maybe I could do this myself. And then um, what happened in Bishop, so I have a little show and tell for you, Chase. So what happened in Bishop is in the early 80s, I um, uh, was going to take my first avalanche class. And it was one of the first avalanche classes taught in the country. They're all over now, Avi 1, 2, and 3. But I was going to take a class with Ed LaChapelle one of the godfathers of avalanche science. And I had no money. So um, the, the outfit that was putting it on, I, um, at, at the time, the uh, beacons, the avalanche beacons were much different than they are now. So here's an old avalanche beacon. This is actually an old Raymer beacon, which might be one of the only ones left in the country. And we had these ridiculous earplugs that we put in. But I went to the um, people putting on the avalanche seminar and said, um, the, the cotton cases get wet and um, don't protect the beacon. So I made a bunch of um, beacon cases out of a foam-backed material. So um, waterproof, very waterproof and protective, and it, but also a little bit padded. So I made enough of these cases that they could give them out to everybody in the seminar and I traded for um, my, my um, uh, tuition with this. And one thing led to another, we had a sewing machine and then we went from there and then we started to make other outdoor gear and um, early on under the name of Buttermilk Mountain Works. That's really how it started was literally one of these little cases right here. I, I know we always hear that okay, like a lot of these companies start because of people like you, users, going out there and actually using the product and finding the problems, you know, creating solutions to those problems. It's, it's very, you know, I mean, that's where a lot of these great outdoor companies start, right? Is, is people who are actually doing the work and outplaying, like are the ones who are finding the need. Um, but, that, you know, for some reason today, this is especially hitting home, right? It's like you were you were out there doing doing what you do, and you you found a specific need and and um, found a way to solve solve a problem. And and I think it's interesting that like the advent of technology introduces new problems, right? So, you know, as as avalanche beacons become more prevalent, well, you need ways to, you know, attach those to the body or keep them from getting wet. Or you know, I, I think that's the interesting part about being a user is is you're in a, a perfect situation to identify the needs, right? And then have coupling that with the, the retail experience, right. And understanding, okay, there's actually some, some market viability here. Um, you know, you're able to bring those together, which, which is, is a powerful combination. Doing, doing product design and then ultimately thinking about how to market and sell it was seamless to me, absolutely seamless and understanding retail and understanding the channel was second nature to me. So it was, it was coming up with the product, but, being in Bishop uh, with uh, um, a confederation of pretty serious outdoor enthusiasts, and we're out there all the time, uh, climbing and skiing and camping in the harsh elements and, and looking at gear. And so one thing led to another in terms of let's, let's improve on this item. Let's, let's take this. So another item that was a very popular 
buttermilk item. It was a gear sling. Okay. Um, in days of your chase, we used to put the gear over our shoulder. Now, now the um, style is different to where you're going to clip onto your harness, you know, um, catalog it on your harness in a certain way and clip into the um, bolts. But we came up with a padded um, gear sling that was uh, webbing with a tube in it. So there's, this is rigid. So it's easy in um, hard moves or whatever to clip on and off of. But additionally, we developed that this sling is sewn bar tack so that it actually has runner strength. So not only is it a gear sling padded, easy to use, but it also could be a runner if needed. I used them to, you know, having run out of slings as a belay sling uh, many times. So yeah, we were, we were able to incorporate thinking, fantasizing, turning those into designs and using the new materials that were out and about and then um, making them cosmetically appealing, of course, and then selling them. Were you the, the one initially making prototypes? of these products? Were you the one behind the sewing machine? No, <laughs> I, I, I could. sew. I spent more time at the sewing machines, tuning them and, and repairing them. But there was uh, at the time, and it's something lost in this country, unfortunately, but at the time there were people in town that were good seamstresses could sit at an industrial machine and do magic. And um, certainly in a small town like this, we gravitated together. So I didn't have to spend the time figuring out how the pieces were going to go together or how the pieces were actually going to be, be cut and designed to make the final item. Um, there were other people who could, who had much more expertise in that. Right. No, that's great. Well, you need, you need both sides, right? It's like, uh, if you can be a maker, right. But if you can't identify good problems, then the things you make aren't going to go very far. Right. Um, but if you have connections to, to makers and you have the know-how, then, then that's a perfect combination. So who did, so who, so were these just home sewers? Was there a sewing operation going on in town that you approached or were they just people that you knew and in, in their homes that you asked for prototypes? Well, in the beginning, there was one friend of mine who I knew, um, uh, uh, whose partner I had known when I was in L.A. Um, to back up a moment, in the late 70s, there was um, some of us that knew each other at Westridge. This, this mountaineering store had a lot of employees it, it it had a ski ski shop side to it camping backpacking hiking and technical climbing and a huge repair shop and so during my college years that that was my uh, family really and there was an exodus of some of us that moved up here in the late 70s and in that population there was a couple people that were so that sewed so we uh, we got together and and um, so when I when I had these made to trade for I I had to shell out of my pocket to my friend for her sewing time because it all has to work right but um, and then over time as my shop grew um, there were people in towns more people used to sew than do now 
And certainly there used to be people that considered it an industrial machine. There were more in the country than there are now. And so that grew. Um, a big part of my work crew for 20 plus years were uh, people from the Paiute Indian Reservation. And they were really talented uh, craftswomen. They, they were really good at sitting at a sewing machine. And then there were other support people. My cutter, the guy who cut, did my production cutting for many, many years was also a member of the tribe. Oh, that's great. What, how did, so I'm curious, I'm, I'm going back a little bit. I'm always curious in how these ideas go from, okay, I'm, I'm trading product for, you know, whatever it is, you know, it, how do you go from, you know, bootstrapping it to, okay, we're actually like selling our first products. Like where, you know, when did that really happen or where, when did you feel like you really, you started to become a, a quote unquote real business? <laughs> well, boy, don't, don't push it that far. I don't know if, <laughs> if, if we ever are, but um, you know, you take, you, you, like you had said earlier, you find this niche or how you can either create a, an item or improve on an item. And then you make a bunch of them. And then it's kind of that deal where you put them in the car and you drive to the stores. You drive at that point. It was I, I was only interested in stores that sold climbing equipment, right? Because it was mostly climbing equipment. And you drove to the stores, and maybe you actually knew somebody there or knew the buyer, and they would give you a try. They'd buy half a dozen of each, of each item or something, and and you just really really uh, pounding the pavement, word of mouth. Um, kind of a thing, maybe show up at a climbing area with some gear slings and chalk bags and a belay seat and people go, yeah, okay. And, and um, much less expensive in those days than now. But then as it went on, they would reorder. So you have, your, then you got to have a phone set up and an order form. You don't have um, the internet or, um, um, you know, they can't push a button and electronically send you the order, but it went from there. So, so literally from pounding the pavement to answering the phone. I think um, to bring this forward a little bit, I think that's, there's some really interesting lessons to be learned there. Cause uh, in our program, we have this design program here at Utah state with aspiring gear designers and, and a few of them want to start their own, own companies. And, and I think for a lot of them, and for me, even it's easy to get hung up with, okay, I need to build a website and I've got to, you know, build all this infrastructure when, at the end of the day, like you got to get your hand in, in or you're going to get your product into the hands of users. Right. And maybe the most efficient way of doing that, or, or the best way of doing that is old fashioned drive to your local retail store and, and um, you know, try to try to go from there. Right. Pounding the pavement. I think there's a lot of value in that. I absolutely do. I absolutely think there's a lot of value in that and being out and about where if it's outdoor gear, where the users are, whether they're mountain biking or hiking or climbing or skiing. Um, the character of, of the channel has changed, though. So for a budding young entrepreneur, um, they, they sort of have to put a website together almost, it seems like today. Mm -hmm. However, you don't have to spend tens of thousands of dollars that we did initially when we finally got into that. Um, there's so many turnkey programs now that you can do it and then you can begin to sell direct. And then the challenge becomes not how good your product is, but how well 
you use social media and how well you market and get the word out. And that is a huge challenge today. Sure. Definitely. Absolutely. Well, I'm curious to hear more about some of your inspirations. I mean, being, being where you're located, there's no shortage of gear pioneers in the region um, that you could look to and say, Oh yeah, they, they did it. Like, here's the model, I guess, or at least some things to avoid doing. Um, you know, pitfalls, for example. So uh, are, are there others around the country or was it purely regional? There were, those were the companies that inspired you or the people that inspired you. Were there other brands that you were looking at regionally or around the country that inspired you in, in the outdoor industry at the time? Well, uh, I'll use our haul bag as an example to answer that question. So we, we worked on making a haul bag out of ballistic nylon, which was um, it's, it's kind of Cordura on steroids, <laughs> really. And um, before, um, I don't know what exactly the material that Black Diamond uses now, shelter light, or I'm not sure what it's called, but the, the really bomber material that, say, haul bags are made of now, we use this ballistics nylon and... Um, the, the thing was is to make a balanced haul bag, but most importantly for a period of time there was how to put a good suspension system on the haul bag with a waistband and shoulder strap to get to the base of the wall and then make that suspension system disappear on the wall because it gets hung up on the rock. And there was us and A5 and... Um, uh, Dave Deagleman, I forget what his company was called, but there was a few of us doing haulbacks. So we were sort of pushing each other to improve all that. And it was kind of cool. The wall climbers all benefited because we just kept improving to make the systems better. So, but, but I think I was influenced by seeing um, people, the, the new, the new um, version of something come out and say, huh, they just used a different material. Why didn't, you know, that's already around. Why didn't I think of that, you know, um, or whatever. And so uh, we used, we used a lot of gear and in those years, it was also for me personally, it was a time when freehill skiing was transforming from a simple three pin binding to getting more burly and from boots, leather boots to going into plastic and I was very involved in breaking and damaging a lot of gear as that went through its evolution to, um, to the day I was remembering recently when I got my first black diamond Scarpa plastic boot. You know, this might be 30 years ago now. That changed everything. But, but being involved in that evolution and testing the limits of materials and gears affected what we did at buttermilk mountain works as well so we we probably should get an origin story on the name of the company too where and and when did you start calling yourselves that i'm sure you know for a time maybe there was no name or um but what what's that time timeline like and origin story there well uh the buttermilk is a now world famous bouldering area right outside of bishop bunch of um uh, granite boulders that have sort of eroded out on the landscape below these incredibly majestic 13,000 foot peaks. And um, so it was in those days, it, it, um, the bouldering area around here. So we, we pulled our name 
right out of that, right from the beginning, out of the buttermilk, because we would go out there. Um, I think that the world might find it interesting when, when I was first bouldering in the buttermilk in the 70s, and also when I first moved to Bishop, I actually lived out there because I was literally homeless, but I could live out there in the spring and the fall and see nobody for a week on end or weeks on end and be the only person bouldering in the buttermilk in the shoulder season, too hot in the summer. Now, during the shoulder season, you can't go out there on, especially on a weekend or a holiday time where there's not 20 to 40 cars and tons of climbers. So I look at the buttermilk through a different lens, a very, very different lens. And I was really proud of that um, origin of the company. And there's two famous boulders there, Grandpa and Grandma Peabody. Grandpa um, is, is sort of like a we, we called it the garbanzo bean, the peabodies are, you know, the peas. Grandpa's a, sort of a big garbanzo bean looking thing, and grandma's more of a split pea. And for a while, that was going to be my logo with the mountains in the background. Um, and on some items, we did use that as a logo. But we were kind of before our time, Chase. I mean, I sort of got out of the business at the beginning of when I could have made a killing just sewing bouldering pads alone. Yeah. <laughs> Crash yeah. pads. Oh, for oh. sure. Yeah. Uh, what, what do you feel? Uh, so it's interesting. Uh, I, there's any number of outdoor companies, especially from this era, I feel like that, that took that format of mountain works, right. But where, where did some of that come from? Cause I see that and I haven't really gone too deep into really where the origins of that kind of a name comes from. Like I think of companies like Rivendell mountain works and um, there, there's a few Jerry mountain sports. And it seems like a number of companies around that time and beforehand adopted that kind of format. Um, it was that, or you attached your name, you know, your family name to, to the brand, um, you know, like a company like Jerry, for example, but, or Chenard. Um, but do you happen to have any insights there? I've been curious of that because that format is is kind of common among from this era. It, it is common. There was Rivendell Mountain Works. There was Great Pacific Iron Works. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, works is kind of a really open, forgiving kind of word. Um, maybe has its history in metallurgy or, or industrial, the industrial world. Um, but... But um, we incorporated a climbing area, the mountains in general, and then and then wanting to know that this was a company by putting works there. Um, it 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 shortens as BMW, uh-huh. and and we did be we put BMW on a lot of labels with buttermilk mountain works um, underneath it in the beginning, but um, the day came. When I got I took got the mail and uh, I was flipping through the mail and there was a BMW logo in the return address, you know, the blue and black logo that we see on the cars. And without opening the envelope, I knew what it was. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was quit using the BMW uh, letters because we got that one worldwide. Oh, wow. So I I did right away. I, you wow. know, I didn't I didn't need that fight. <laughs> well, you must have you must have been doing something right to to get noticed 
um, that way. I got th- that leads me into how did you grow? I, I you know I think like very organically, but like, what was the peak of Buttermilk Mountain Works? More the the outdoor side of the business. I know there was kind of a second chapter, um, but what what was the peak? Um, in terms of employees, you know, just reach in general, what, and, and when, when was that peak? Like what kind of year wise would that have been? Um, the, uh, the, the biggest, one big influence that helped us grow going into the mid to late eight, maybe mid eighties into the mid nineties was that I had a lot of contacts in the outdoor industry from my previous life in the retail trade and knowing reps and that sort of thing. But also in those years, I was very involved in helping get the American Mountain Guides Association off the ground. So um, in, we, we sort of uh, rebirthed that after its original uh, Moose Bar Charter, which was put together in Wyoming, um, and then it sort of dwindled off. But then uh, in the early 80s, there was a liability insurance crisis that was going to shut down a lot of the outdoor industry and certainly outdoor adventure guiding. And so we got really involved in in getting the guides organized. Well, because of that, and I had guided for a while, I had a lot of guide friends. And those guide friends were from all over the country. They took my gear and used it. And then they took it to their local retailers and said, buy some, buy some stuff from this guy. Right. So I was selling in North Conway. I was selling in Colorado. I was selling in the Bay Area, Southern California, um, all over the place because of my guide friends. So that relationship was really, really important. And um, but that can't be said without talking about the other side of the business that really helped um, underwrite and help with the growth, which was making products with all these same outdoor recreation fabrics and materials um, in another industry. Well, let's dive into that. I think that's that's a great way to set this up. I'm I'm curious how you got into the uh, the tech tech side of things and uh, the, the computers. I mean, it makes sense considering your location, how you would have recognized that as an opportunity. Um, but I'd be curious to hear how that, that opportunity came up. Well, quite frankly, a, fr- a friend of mine sort of thought about the idea as the early PCs were coming on deck in the early 80s um, that uh, we could take this pack cloth, the lighter weight pack cloth, and make dust covers for these computers, which um, at the time were uh, the electronics and the components were much more susceptible to dust or certainly moisture. And people weren't used to um, uh, having a computer keyboard on the desk. So it was not uncommon to spill the cup of coffee or if it was later in the day, the cocktail over your keyboard and then boom, you're in trouble. So we started making dust covers out of pack cloth for the early computers. And um, the volume of that far exceeded even the Buttermilk Mountain Works products um, in terms of, you know, we would, we would make tens of thousands of dust covers in a, in a run over um, the time when when we might make one or two hundred pieces of a BMW item, a buttermilk Mountain Works item. I don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> a buttermilk Mountain Works item. So um, we started we started making these things, and in and in those days, 
Um, uh, oftentimes you bought a keyboard and a CPU, and then there was electronics and cable adapters that allowed you to hook up to monitors. And, and there were very much different combinations of hardware. And I would go to these trade shows, these early computer trade shows with my pack cloth covers. And um, we also made cases to carry around CPUs and keyboards and printers, because that's what people were doing. So we used Cordura fabric and foam and webbing, bomber cases that were never going to come apart. So all the dust covers and cases I could offer with a lifetime warranty because they were never going to come apart. But I would go to these computer shows and somebody would say, well, can you make a dust? These were consumer shows, some of them. Could you make a dust cover for a certain combination of a size of a monitor on an early Apple II computer? And I'd say, sure, I don't have a dust cover for that, but I'll make one for you. I went to trade show after trade show, Chase, and took in thousands of dollars of prepayment for something I didn't have. Hmm. But then I would have to go scramble. I would have to go to the city and find people who were early adopters of personal computers and talk my way into their business. I talked my way into law offices and medical offices so I could measure the machines <laughs> and make a dust cover for them. And then I would give them a dust cover and then it would end up on my price list and I would sell a thousand of them, right? So that helped to underwrite um, the, the, the whole operation, really. And, and at the time, you know, we were up to... 20, 24 employees at the height of all of that. Okay. Between the two. And was, and was this one business? I mean, you weren't selling dust covers as buttermilk mountain works. This, this was Abcom. Is that right? Right. We, we gave it a different name, Abcom, um, kind of a nerdy computer type name. And um, our logo, our logo for that was, um, an umbrella over a computer. I guess this comes up backwards on your screen, but no, that's great. Um, so we were offering protection. And again, it was so easy for me to market and sell because I knew I was selling something that um, who, who's uh, uh, char- the characteristic of the products far exceeded what the purpose was. So I could say to people, this is going to protect your computer. No problem. Right. So I, I guess at that point, you know, you mentioned the computer side of the business, underwriting that or the the gear side of the business. Um, when did that not make sense anymore to to kind of fund the outdoor side with the computer side? Or I guess where where did some of this end up? Well, um, the the computers side using using the materials to make the cases and the covers became um, dominant in terms of production timing for one thing because we had so the volume of pieces was so much more so one step I took was at at one point I quit wholesaling buttermilk mountain works items I didn't sell to retailers anymore we just a handful, maybe. I took it down to a handful, local climbing shop, um, sort of in Bishop and Mammoth. And then we did up more direct. So that changed. Um, and then uh, we went, then we go into the late 1990s and into the early 2000s. And um, 
the chapter ends <laughs> on that. And what we evolved into was um, that this, when I started making, say, computer cases and I started making outdoor gear, there was a lot of outdoor gear on the market. And again, we tried to fill in niches where we could of things um, and offer alternatives. Besides the climbing gear, we also had some travel gear, duffel bags and day packs and passport pouches and garment bags, and we could fill a niche in in the store. So I was able for many years in the 80s and 90s to increase our sales. Um, but, but over time, the influence of getting stuff made in China, and then certainly when Vietnam opened up, that really changed things. Because you could, you would have to buy larger quantities of things, but the pricing just plummeted over what you could do domestically. And that's when we saw, I used to buy from mills, I used to buy fabric dye lots from mills that um, the, the fabric would be made in the East, in Massachusetts or either North or South Carolina, where they'd be woven and then dyed up in Massachusetts. Those mills began to shut down and everything went to China. So it was either make a huge investment um, and change the, the nature of the business or uh, call it good and um, have enjoyed the run and, and move on. And that's well, what it's, I did. it's a story that I know Jim and Craig Jim and Greg faced. Um, I, I told you a little bit about um, Hein Snowbridge. We interviewed the Hein brothers recently, and that was really the downfall of, of Hein Snowbridge and um, was they weren't able to make that transition overseas as, as well and really got priced out and, and they were making bags of all different kinds, bike packing and, and for back, backpacking. Um, so it's a, it's a common story, um, that, that we see, um, the nineties were not kind to the outdoor industry in, in a lot of ways. Um, but I, I guess from, from there, where did you, I guess, where did you go from there? You had been doing this started in 82 and went through 2003. I mean, product was what you knew. Where do you go after, you know, 20 plus years of being in, in the, the product business and specifically in outdoor, you know, you'd been involved longer than that. Well, and living in a rural area like Bishop, where do you mm. go from there? So right. um, before, before I answer that question, I would say one thing is, is that the, the 90s weren't kind to a lot of outdoor companies. You're absolutely right. My personal story, it was a good run. I had a really good time, made a lot of good friends. We put out a lot of good product. Um, I had a lot of loyal, really good employees and learned a lot about um, human interaction and management and that kind of thing. And I wouldn't trade it for the world. But what happened to me was in uh, 2003. So another a friend of mine here in town had a business where he imported product from China. And he and I knew each other from the climbing skiing world, again, a smaller community than, than it is now. Um, and he and I used to lament to each other that we'd go to these trade shows, whether they were direct to consumer or wholesale trade shows, and come back with all these leads, but we'd have to come back and run our businesses and we couldn't follow up on all these leads. It was frustrating. It was hard to build our businesses. Well, when I was shutting my business down 
we just looked at each other and I said, why don't I come and take that problem off of your hands for his company? So I closed down and, and moved over there and became the national sales manager for this company, really helped grow a wholesale business and get that company into a couple different markets than it was in before. And I just um, recently retired after 17 years of doing that. So I got no complaints. <laughs> well, I know this is, is common for uh, other people that we've interviewed who have since retired from you know, the day-to-day of working in the outdoor industry. Do you, do you have more time to actually get out and play than maybe you did when you were working in the business? Well, I always, it, it, since the day I folded up my last final at UCLA and moved to Bishop, I always made it a priority to get outside. My credo is get out. But when you run a business, you have to sacrifice that um, many, many times. So it's hard. Um, But I've always been able to do that over the years. But since retiring, I've certainly had a lot more time to get out. And it's been quite gratifying. The other thing that's happened to me um, as a small business owner with Buttermilk Mountain Works in a small town from early on, I also got involved. Another side of my life is in community activism, in, in dealing with how a community changes in looking at what's going on um, in the Sierra Nevada region as communities grow and there's sprawl and there's water quality and air quality and wildfire issues and that sort of thing. So I've been involved in a lot of those from the beginning, but now I'm able to devote uh, and and over the last uh, couple decades, more and more time to that. So my activism has ramped up to Mach three. That's fantastic. No, that's great. Um, well, wow. this, I did we miss anything? This has been uh, fantastic to learn a little bit more about your story and and about this company and and um, I, I just appreciate learning about. You know the 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 big companies as well as the the smaller brands, the mid tier. It's it's fun for me to just learn about, you know how how you built something from the ground up. That's I I leave these conversations inspired, and I know our listeners love that as well as, you know, learning about people who built something from the ground up. You know, had an idea and made it reality. But what what did we miss? Did we? Is there something that we didn't cover? Any other parting thoughts from your side? Well, what I hope we didn't miss is, is that whatever anybody's going to do, what made it gratifying for me is that it was a passion, that it was something I wanted to do, that having fun every step of the way was really, really important. That doesn't mean there weren't stressful, trying times that comes with the territory, but but having fun and um, being compassionate and human with the people around you is really important as we go forward in business. And that would be a message I would give any new entrepreneur. That's great. Well, and Hey, it's never too late for a revival either. If I've learned anything from, from Jim, I don't know if Jim's talked to you much about him reviving wilderness experience, getting, getting the rights back to the name and doing a small run of, of wilderness experience packs. Um, recently, but maybe we'll see a small run of, of slings out there. I don't know. 
I have I have one of his re, re uh, Phoenix packs that rose from the ashes, and it replaces the early clutter sack that when I was a young climber at 18 years old, I owned from Wilderness Experience. Oh, that's great! So it's never too late. That's great. <laughs> that's all. great. Well, Alan, this has been this has been great. Thank you for taking time to tell your story and share insights with me, and just taking the time in general. So. Well, thanks, Chase. It's been a wonderful conversation and it has certainly drawn up a lot of memories. All good. Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. For more conversations with outdoor leaders, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, watch episodes on the Outdoor Product Design and Development YouTube channel, or on opdd.usu.edu slash podcast. Follow along on Instagram at USU Outdoor Product and let us know how you're enjoying the show.